0: morning. hope you're doing well today here in the auditorium. Good morning to everyone in the venue as well. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I'm still cheering for the Broncos. (laughs) Defending champs for at least eight more hours. (laughs) Boo, Patriots. I hope you're doing well today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnivore Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. We're in a series that we've titled Social, in which we've been looking at a number of the most important relationships that God gives to us, be it our, our marriages or our friendships we talked about last week. Today and next Sunday, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about parenting. We're also, in these coming weeks, going to talk about um, the gift that God gives some, of singleness, which doesn't feel like a gift to many that are going through singleness, but we'll, we'll journey through that whole idea of singleness, how we can support each other in that. Talk about the relationship that we have with the church. What is the relationship that we have, well, with, with the body of Christ, the family of Christ. And uh, that's where we're going here in the next uh, several weeks in this series, Social. Uh, but today is the parenting ideal. Let me ask this question to begin. When mom gives birth to that little baby boy, to that little baby girl, what is she hoping for in 18 years? When mom or dad adopt a five-year-old boy or girl, what are they hoping for 13 or 14 years from that day? I think we're wise to ask those questions from time to time, to, to pause in our parenting and our grandparenting and, and say, I'd like to begin with the end in mind and ask myself, what, what am I hoping for? And then go back to that on a regular basis. A couple years ago, Susie and I, my wife is Susie, and, and we, uh, we listened to a message by Andy Stanley from North Point Church and. Atlanta, and it was a message on the decisions that he and his wife would go through as they considered the end as a related touch of their parenting, and they developed a grid for what they would say yes to and what they would say no to, but uh, the way they defined their end was this. They hoped that in 19 or 20 years, well, when their their kids left the home, uh, their goal would be that uh, the kids would want to come home even when they didn't have to come home. That, that's how they began with the end in mind. So Susie and I processed through that message, and uh, we like to read books together on parenting or on marriage and, and sometimes get a third-party perspective. We're a cheap date for one another. And uh, we asked the, that same question, what is our end goal? And we settled at these two. That, number one, our kids would find their joy and their hope in the radiance and the goodness of God. That, first and foremost, they would know that He is the one they can put their trust in. That He is good all the time. And that, second, they would, like Stanley said, they'd want to come home even when they don't have to come home. Not that they'd want to live at home. They need to have their own apartment and they need to pay for it, I might add. But, but they want to come home when they don't have to come home. You see, I'm firmly convinced that the greatest contribution to the kingdom of God that I will have is the young men that I raise. My kids are five and nine right now, and I am convinced that that will be the greatest contribution that God will give me for the kingdom of God. Now, well, why is that? Because anything else I do, someone else can do. Someone else can pastor this church. And thank God, a number of others have done it very, very well. Much more gifted than me. And others can pastor this church. Others can do your job too. Others can do your volunteer work. Others can teach the art classes or the music classes that you teach. Others can coach the teams that you coach. And all those are very valuable but no one else can be mom or dad to your kids do i have your attention this morning i'd like to speak on general parameters that the bible would give to us as we develop kind of our parenting philosophy even grandparenting philosophy philosophy i might add next sunday we'll look at a few more specifics that the Bible would give to us as we consider how we would train our kids toward God's best, how we would train ourselves toward God's best as parents. We'll do that next week. But let me begin this two-week mini-series well within social by acknowledging that it's much much easier to give this message from this stage when your kids are five and nine, right? I mean, the journey's the, the journey's still out of my parenting. Okay. The, the jury is still out on how good we are doing with this when your kids are young. And so there's no experts on stage here, I promise that. There is no one pointing fingers at you because as the old saying goes, there would be three more pointing right back at me, okay? Uh, I promise not to be an expert as I speak on this, but I, I do promise I, I trust in the Word of God and will go to the Word of God, which is unchanging for us, and I ask lots of really good parents, lots of questions about their parenting, and we read a lot on this subject, and, and beyond that, are there any experts in parenting in the room? None of us are, right? I mean, this, this is one, truly, that has a way of bringing out the worst in all of us. And so we need grace, and so I will speak with grace, know that. I will give grace as I speak on this topic, and and I need grace as well. If you're struggling in this area, I pray that over these coming weeks, you would receive grace. We'll dive into the Scriptures together as we seek to grow in this wonderful gift that God gives us, this wonderful privilege, though, that He gives uh, parenting our little uh, girls and boys. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a specific guidebook, as it were, for parenting, I sometimes wish that it would. It doesn't give a, a, a real specific how-to, but what it does give is some general parameters for, again, developing this parenting philosophy, developing a, a philosophy of how we're to mentor and guide our kids, and it also gives uh, some parameters for how we would train ourselves to be great parents and how we would continue to grow ourselves as we seek to do what uh, those three families just noted, as we seek to take on this great responsibility of being the primary faith trainers of our kids. I love that Pastor Kent and E-Free Kids sees that as our role. It's really not the church's role. Uh, The church can come alongside parents and assist them in this great role and give uh, great tips and great uh, helps in, in, in how we can grow as parents. But ultimately, the best the church can do is a few hours a week, at best. Parents... Wow, we, we get the, the awesome and wonderful responsibility of, of perhaps dozens of hours a week while with our kids. So we will look to the book of Proverbs here as we grow ourselves, and I think we'll see in the book of Proverbs that training happens best in the context of consistent love and consistent discipline. This is the big idea for this morning. Training happens best in the context of relationships in which you're journeying together, but we provide consistent love and consistent discipline. And really, this is what's going on throughout the book of Proverbs. You you might read that entire book over these next uh, four or five weeks as we continue in this series. I've noted that I'm kind of using it as the foundation for each of these messages. And as you read through the book of Proverbs, well, one of the things though that you'll notice It's right in the center of your Bible. Well, one of the things that you notice is much of it is a father's instruction to his son as they journey through life together. It's take a look at this object lesson, son. Learn from the ant and the way he works. Take a look at this fool, my dear son. Learn from the things that he does wrong as he does them wrong. It's taking specific object lessons from life and giving instruction from a father to a son. It's not all of that, but that is much of the Proverbs. Now, don't get hung up in the masculinity of that. That's the way people wrote, and of course, this was King Solomon instructing his son and then giving us instruction across time as well. But, but this, of course, is also instruction from a mother to her daughter or a mother to her son. As you read through the Proverbs, you'll notice that the number one most frequently used to describe a parent's duty to their child is, could you guess? What's the word? It's discipline. Can I get an amen? Not really, right? (laughs) Not really, if we're honest. I mean, ick. None of us really wants to receive discipline. None of us wants to give discipline. Many of us don't really want to live a disciplined life. But this word discipline is used most frequently as it relates to a parent's duty to their children. Discipline and with it the synonym of training. Because you really can't get to discipleship without the word discipline. The words discipleship and disciple and discipline, they all have the same root word, don't they? You can't get to discipleship without the word discipline. And so what we're going to do here this morning is open up the the book of Proverbs, if you join me in Proverbs chapter 3, and we're just going to look at a number of different passages here real quickly as I file through from Proverbs 3 and uh, look at, I think, four different passages quickly, and then uh, we'll give a few comments on those and then kind of give a matrix by the time we complete uh, today's message on uh, how we grow discipline and love and and the priority of discipline and love in our relationships. If you don't have your Bible well with you today, you can um, just follow along on the screen. But if you do have your Bible today, you might mark these verses as we go. The first one is Proverbs 3, starting at uh, 11 and 12. King Solomon writes here, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, Or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Again, you hear that, both love and discipline together. That discipline reproof is a kind of love. Now, move over to chapter 13 and look at verse 24. Flipping over about 10 pages to that. Oh, I love to hear those Bible pages flipping. Or the tap of your finger on your phone. <laughs> Proverbs 13, verse 24. It says here, uh, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to Discipline him. Wow, what are we talking about here? Whoa, Nellie, we're not going to talk about this, are we, Adrian? Yeah, we are. We are. For a few minutes, stick with me. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Don't dismiss what we're saying just because we, talk, we mentioned the word, the rod. We'll come back to that in a minute. Don't dismiss it. Let's let's learn what the Bible has to say here about discipline. Now, Now let's move forward. Understanding that discipline is this expectation. He who loves is diligent to discipline. Go down to chapter 19, verse 18. Such a beautiful verse here. It says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Or as it says in the ESV, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. I love the way it's framed here in the NIV on the screen. Do not be a willing party to his death. The parent who chooses not to discipline their son or daughter is like someone who's just kind of standing off, looking as someone is moving toward a destructive path and unwilling to intervene to prevent them from that destruction. Don't be a willing party to their death. Now chapter 29, verse 17, last one for this morning. Discipline your son, discipline your daughter, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. What a word. That the parent who refuses to discipline never has rest. Have you seen that, parent? They never have peace at nighttime. But the parent who disciplines... Provides a framework, provides boundaries, provides proper fences. She rests at bedtime. He rests at bedtime. So many more could be noted, but I think it's worth asking this question. Why so much focus on discipline, on structure, on training a child in the way that he or she should go? It doesn't feel that loving according to our contemporary definitions of love, does it? Our contemporary definitions of love have all to do with feeling, but the biblical definition of love includes a great amount of training and structure. And the way that you see biblical definition of love offered that the framework that is provided in the book of Proverbs is that underneath love will always include training, will always include discipline, always include instruction and reproof. I love the way the late chairwoman of the University of Stanford School of Psychiatry A woman named Alberta Siegel puts it. Alberta Siegel was uh, the very first tenured professor of uh, psychiatry, the the very first uh, female professor who was tenured at the University of Stanford. And she was an expert in childhood development. And she writes this. It's, It's really amazing coming from an intellectual elite. She notes this in the Stanford Observer. When it comes to rearing children, every society is only 20 years away from barbarism. Twenty years is all that we have to accomplish the task of civilizing the infants who are born into our midst each year. These savages know nothing (laughs) of our customs, of interpersonal relations. The infant is totally ignorant about democracy, civil liberties, respect, decency, honesty, conventions, and manners. The barbarism must be tamed if civilization is to survive. Isn't that curious coming from someone from University of Stanford? And who does she think she is calling my beautiful, perfect kids savages? Right? Anyone else? What is she talking about? She has her finger on the pulse of human nature. She understands that there's something so powerful going on within every heart called sin and if it is not tamed civilization will not move forward we have these 20 years she is saying to tame what we all have within us that by nature and by choice we only look out for three people can you guess what their names are me myself and i i heard you say that's right But by nature and by choice, we look out for those three people. That's why you don't have to teach Sally to be selfish. She does it all on her own. That's why I didn't need to teach Elijah and Silas how to lie. They did it on their own. What they need to be taught is honesty, integrity, discipline, structure. We're sinners by our own human condition. And so we all, no matter our faith, no matter what your religious perspective is here today, we all have this sin nature raging within us such that we need this training, we need this guidance. And so it is for our very own good that the Bible says explicitly, train your child in the way that he or she should go. Let's put up Proverbs 3 once again on the screen. Let's all read this together, both, here in, the, or both in the auditorium and in the venue. Let, let's all read this together. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Don't miss what this passage is saying. It's saying that God loves you and God loves your children just the way they are. But he loves you and he loves your children so much that he's not willing to leave you or your children where you are. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much that he will move you forward. He's not willing to leave us in an infantile state. He wants to grow us and therefore he reproves us. And so also a good earthly mother or father desires to grow their children and therefore they reprove and guide their children. Unfortunately, though this seems like common sense, it really does. It really does. It seems like common sense, but our culture has lost an appreciation for this necessary reality in our parenting. Consistent discipline provides kids with the safety that they need. And in the context of unconditional love, it has the capacity the wonderful capacity to shape minds and shape hearts and help us to begin to develop respect and perseverance and even the the ability by the power of the holy spirit to start to resist sin to resist the sin nature that is in with there's within all of us That we don't have to capitulate to all of our temptations but we can fight against them such that we would not be enslaved by them yes please i mean this is all for our own good It's through discipline, it's through training, that perhaps, perhaps my kids won't have to learn the same hard lessons that I did. The same ways that I did. Yes, please, Lord Jesus, may it be that my kids wouldn't have to learn the hard way as often as I did. Now, the Bible gets a a bad rap on this word discipline, and uh, in essence, the reason that it does is because it has the gall to say that spanking will not kill your kids. Right? That's why, in essence, the Bible gets a bad rap on this subject. So we looked at that verse in Proverbs 13 that speaks of um, using the rod to discipline your child. That's an ancient way of saying spank your child. As it was for many of us growing up, it was a paddle. But many of us, from our cultures, from different cultures that you've been raised in, that I was raised in, from our families, we were raised in a culture, raised in families where it was absolutely taboo to ever spank your child. And I I certainly won't give any instruction on how parents should do that or whether you should do that in your specific situation or not. But I will say this, God is smarter than we give him credit for. I will say that. And we have this tendency to do this with the Scriptures, that we read something that we don't like and we skip over it. Or we ignore it and we say, that's really not for me. Or that's really not for now anymore. And what we should do instead, I think, is trust that God is a little bit smarter than we sometimes give Him credit for. And perhaps ask the question, why is this passage here? And then deal with it. And it's going to be different for each of us. And again, I'm not giving any instruction. But I I do think it's wise for us to ask, why is that there? And why is it listed six or seven times, though, that you'll see as you read the Proverbs? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that there are some things that kids do which are a really big deal. And when they do something that's a really big deal, it merits a really serious consequence. And again, that will be different in each home But I'll share with you that in our home, there are two, and to this point, only two reasons that we utilize a hand to the bottom. And it's always in love, and it's always with an eye to correction, and it's never in anger. But those two reasons in our home are safety and honesty. Okay, let let, let me illustrate. When my two-and-a-half-year-old boy... Um, or when when my nine year old boy was two and a half, he ran out of the grocery store into a very busy parking lot. Have you been there, mom and dad? Okay, a simple timeout wouldn't do it. But taking him aside and a hard spanking, he's never done it again. It was serious enough that I said, "I'm not going to lose you over this, Elijah. It's too big of a deal." So safety is one of those for us. Another one is that whole issue of lying and conniving and cheating. Because I'm convinced that once a family loses honesty, they lose everything. Once a family loses integrity and this commitment to telling the truth, they lose it all. And so in all of our relationships, we want to seek transparency, we want to seek honesty. And so at least we've made this decision for our kids that when they set up a scheme... That when they lie, when they connive together, or when they steal, that whole panoply underneath the banner of lying, they will get a hand to the bottom. And interestingly enough, we don't have to do that very often. Because it's rare. It's special. It's unique. And it's never done in the context of anger. It's always done in the context of love, with instruction, with an eye toward interrupting a destructive behavior such as lying or such as unsafety and preventing them from moving down this path of destruction uninterrupted. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I, I really hope it does. You, you don't do this in any kind of wanton way. It's always with the eye toward love, whatever the discipline is that you might select well, with, your chi- with your kids. The loving thing is to determine when and how to consistently mete out discipline for the benefit of our children. Now, now, parents, what's the key to discipline? I heard someone say consistency. And that's it. It's consistency in a word. Consistency. And you think about God as, as being the very nature, the very essence. In his very being, he is consistent. Jesus is described as the alpha and the omega. The beginning, the end, and the middle. He He does not change. He does not lie. He does not shift. Uh, Great is your faithfulness, O God. Your compassions are new every morning. That He He rises the sun and He sets the sun with His reliability. He is totally reliable every day. Uh, his very character is reliable. That He promises to save one hundred percent of people who trust in Him. He promises that He loves the entire world. He promises that that He will fulfill everything that He has said. All that He has said will come to pass. He will return and He will bring justice to the world. He is the very essence of reliability. And so there is no surprise that He would create us in His image needing consistency as well. Friends, consistent expectations with consistent consequences get more consistent results. Now this isn't to say that our kids are Pavlovian dogs. Of course they're not. And they're not robots. And they have a will of their own. And they oftentimes will exercise that will against mom and dad. But it is a truth that if we choose to be consistent, we will more frequently get consistent results. It won't always be a one-to-one ratio, and we'll talk about that some more next week. But more consistent behavior results in more consistent behavior. Okay? And and so it's just key for us to regularly ask ourselves these questions. In in preparing these messages, I had to ask myself the, the question, do I use a consistent, strong, but loving tone of voice when I give expectations? Am I consistent in following through on those expectations? Do I expect my kids to respond to the first request, or do I let them go for three or four requests before I start yelling? Do we negotiate consequences with our kids, or are we consistent with the consequences that we say we'll give to our kids? In our better moments, Susie and I will remind ourselves that we do not negotiate with terrorists or children. Because when there's no backbone in the home, there will be no peace in the home. So we got to be consistent with meeting out the expectations that we talk about ahead of time. And we do this all in love, in kindness, without anger, never with a vengeful attitude. I love the way in the New Testament the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6. He's talking about household relationships. He talks about husbands and wives. And then he moves over to talk about parents and how they work with their kids and kids, how they would obey the other parents. And he says this to to the fathers in the audience today He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, do not exasperate your children, do not be harsh with your children. Be gentle, fathers, well with your children. Don't provoke them such that when they hear your voice, they know, oh, I'm in trouble yet again. I can't ever measure up to his or her expectations. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so this balance of firmness and generosity and kindness and an, an emotional environment of safety for the kids to be trained is so Critical. Susie and I are reading a book right now on creating attachment bonds in all of our relationships. It, it emphasizes specifically parenting, but it also talks about the attachment bonds that we want to create with our kids and in our friendships, such that other people feel safe in our presence, such that she would feel safe with me, such that I would feel safe with her, and our kids would know that they're always safe with us. And in the book, there is a quote from a four year old. Named Billy. And he says this when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Man, isn't that what we want in our marriages? And that what we want in our friendships. And that what we want with our grandparenting. And isn't that what we want in our parenting with our kids that that when I say his name he knows even if it might come with discipline it's safe never out of vengeance always out of love and if you're not sure if your home is safe for your kids emotionally here would be a really really bold application ask them ask them Do, do you feel safe here Do you want to bring your friends to play at our home? What can I do to help you feel safe? Grandparents could ask the same thing. I think of the tension that I hear about in many families today between uh, adult grown kids and their parents and tension related to religion and tension related to politics. And they can't even sit down around the dinner table right now because of that tension. And, And you might just ask, do you feel safe? And if not, why? And, and reinforce, honey, even when we disagree, I promise you I love you. And I want to understand your perspective, even when it differs from my perspective. And, and this relationship is more important, though, than me proving though, that I'm right. And it, I want you to know that I want you to be safe in this home. And then, after you ask, you simply ask the Lord to separate the wheat from the chaff, because there's always some of both when you ask someone their honest opinion, isn't there? <laughs> Sometimes there'll be plenty of chaff in that answer, but ask God to separate the wheat from the chaff and to say boldly, God, what is it that I need to apply to make my relationships more safe? Again, the key here is the sweet balance between discipline and love. I I wonder, parents, have you ever asked yourself the question, uh, what's more necessary, discipline or love? Anyone want to raise your hand to that? Okay, I used to have this fake little dialogue in my mind like they were contradictory to one another, that, that maybe all kids need was love, that's kind of what our, our society says, all kids need is love, and then other times like no, and all they need is, is really, really strong discipline, they really don't need much, much love, they just need great structure, and like they're contradictory to, to each other. And so I developed a little bit of a matrix here that I'd like to share with you that uh, speaks to these two, discipline or love, and what is necessary and uh, let me just draw this up on the screen for you, if I can. This computer thing's new to me. That was a joke. <laughs> sorry. So here we have uh, Matt Ryan throwing a touchdown to Julio. Oh, sorry, that's not what we're talking about here. My mistake. Okay. <laughs> Keep to task. Adrian, what are you doing here? Stay on focus. Okay. Can you all see that? Okay. So simple matrix here, and you have on one side the word discipline, and you have low down in the bottom corner, and then on the other side up at the top you have the word love, and low love is on the left-hand side, high love is on the right-hand side, And so there's kind of four different ways that we can think about this uh, matrix and the interplay between love and discipline in our parenting. And uh, of course, the person who is high on discipline but low on love, that's kind of a police officer. Okay, we have police officers in this church whom I'm very grateful for and they are loving, but that's not their job to be loving, is it? It's their job to give discipline. And we're grateful for for the way they give discipline. So thankful for for that. Uh, So they need to be high on discipline, low low on love. The one who's low on discipline and low on love, that is what you call a deadbeat. Right? You've seen those parents. They don't provide either. It's a deadbeat. You have one who is low on discipline and high on love. I'm told that is a grandparent. correct? I I understand it's the only phase of life that actually delivers on its promises. But you have the parent who is really, really high on discipline and really consistent with it and really, really high on love and never harsh and full of kindness and forgiveness and prayer and generosity and I got your back no matter how you fail and that's called biblical parenting. And that's what I'm after. And I know that's what you're after as well. And it's this commitment that we go after together. That consistent training in the context of consistent love and consistent discipline is the absolute best thing for, for our kids. Training. Training. In the context of consistent love and consistent discipline is exactly what our kids need. Those of you who are coaches, you know that's what the kids in your team need. Those of you who are music teachers, those of you who are school teachers, those who are mentors to an at-risk kid, those who are grandparents, and those who are parents, uh, this is true. What the Bible says is true. What we need is not simply love. That's what our culture would say. Love is all we need. What we need is an extra large helping of strong, consistent discipline. And another extra large helping of strong, consistent, abiding love. Is any of us perfect at this? None of us are perfect at this. And so we go to the Lord, seeking his grace, Whenever we fail, asking him to build us up, to make commitments even today. Which of these three, consistency, discipline, or love, do you need to make a commitment to provide more of in your mentorship, in your parenting relationships today? Let's make that commitment now as we pray. Would you join me? Father in heaven, how we thank you for your great mercy to us even when we fail We thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, and you forgive us, and uh, you're a loving Father. You're the very best Father any of us could ever have. Lord, we're grateful for our earthly parents, and many of us have wonderful earthly parents, and some of us don't, but we're so thankful, Lord, that no matter what we had on earth, we have a heavenly Father who is strong when we are weak who reproves us for our own good and who loves us when we fail. So I pray for all my friends in this room today that they would know the good heart of the good, good Father to forgive them wherever they are today. And I ask as well, Lord, for each of us that you would grow us in this grace of consistency in all of our relationships, but especially this one. That you would grow us in the grace of training our kids up, of disciplining our kids where it's needed, because that is loving. And you would help us to do it all with gentleness and with kindness that feels like love, that feels like safety. Lord, we confess that, that this is the relationship that confounds us all. All of us will fail so frequently in it, and so we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have failed. We ask for your help as we move forward in our parenting and grandparenting. We, we thank you, Lord, for the gift that you have given us of being able to make a difference in so many children's lives. We give you praise for all that you have given and the wonderful opportunity we have to steward these little ones. We are careful to give you all of the glory, all of the credit as you grow us now. In Jesus' holy name we ask together. Amen.